it's very interesting that you know the two of you have come together in this work because um on the surface and everything's a different view on the surface than it is underneath but on the surface um here's jeff from a privileged and uh academic and uh certainly upper middle class background was that a fair comment jeff yeah, it's right. Um, and and you, Rhiannon, coming from an impoverished, uh, still white, but still impo impoverished uh, uh, an environment that's completely different. Mm -hmm. uh, and and you know, one of the things I've talked a lot about in my work is the importance of understanding lenses mm -hmm. that we're all looking at the world through our lenses, and mm -hmm. our lenses are the right lenses, according to our ego, at least. Mm -hmm. um, and the greatest piece of um, emotional intelligence you'll ever have is the ability to put on somebody else's lenses. Yeah. Not, to, not to take them on, but to put them on um, and understand that they don't see the world the way you do. And you two came up into the world in a very different place, mm -hmm. but both ended up pursuing things that were much bigger and burning out. You know, Jeff talked about burning out from his 65 hours. You talked about burning out with your stuff. You talked about both of you getting sick and ending up in near-death situations. So let's, let's, let's go to that weird and wonderful world that I definitely know a little bit about, which is the, uh, oh, I'm dead. Uh, <laughs> so let, let's, can you, uh, each of you share a little bit about your experience of uh, the near-death experience, because it seems like such a out-there conversation from e global economics, mm -hmm. from uh, the Economics Club of Canada, or what the work that you are, guys are doing, uh, and talk to us a little bit about it and how it brought you to the place you're in. Yeah. Um, mine was a little more dramatic in the sense that it was like a one hit for me. I think Jeff's is a series of events that happened. Yeah, because those um, men are daft, that's why. I had four <laughs> falls. <laughs> I had four falls. We were a bit thicker, that's all. Yeah, so, I mean, he kept going there for a bit. Um, yeah. I definitely took the message when I got it. Um, but for me, I, um, like I mentioned, I do a lot of work with um, Indigenous uh, youth across Canada. Um, I was running a program um, where we were living in Nunavut. Um, we were living in the Arctic on the land. There was a group of us, 50, half of us were Indigenous, half of us were non-Indigenous. We were coming together to try and come up with ideas, business ideas actually, to create solutions um, around truth and reconciliation. Um, we got caught in what was a very horrific storm. Um, we were, um, we had been uh, on boats into uh, an inlet, a piece of land, Peterhead Inlet, and uh, we were supposed to be leaving that morning anyway, so we'd run out of supplies, food. Um, the uh, gentlemen that were leading our expedition uh, came and told me that it was very, very bad and that we were going to have to be airlifted um, out from the area that we were in. I mean, I had all of these young kids and it was quite scary, obviously, um, but I prepared my mind for that and up in these small communities, there was one helicopter, it could fit six people. We were gonna have to do multiple trips in order to get people back to the main town. Um, once I had everyone in their groupings, the men that were leading the expedition came back and said, I'm sorry, um, the weather is so bad that the helicopter can't even get out. 
Um, wow. And so we actually have, there's a fisherman in town. He's got a 50 foot boat. It's not designed for this, but he's willing. He thinks it can handle the, the, the water and the tide and um, we're, he's going to try and give it a shot. And I said, is this our only option? And he said, yeah. So um, we got everyone in their survival suits and we waited for this fisherman to arrive. It's the second highest tide in the world where we are. The, the water hits the shore at once at 10 a.m. Um, and it hits it once again at 10 p.m. And you don't want to be doing that. Um, so we waited wow. and had to um, get all of the kids onto the smaller boats to transfer onto this larger boat. As we took off, it was the scariest hour of my life. Um, people were being thrashed around, almost thrown overboard. Um, I had kids with, you know, concussions and uh, it was just the, one of the scariest moments of my life. Um, and in that moment, it had been in a long time since I had talked to God, or it had been a long time since I had been like, ah, uh, if there's anyone up there, I think now's the Hello? time. Hello? Yeah. I was like, uh, hey, uh, God, you remember me? Um, okay. So sorry. I'm about not all crazy that. kid. It was doing crazy yeah. shit, but, uh, I, I really like, need your help right now. Yeah. Sorry about all the, the MDMA, but I need to help right now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it was in that moment, but what was so resounding, I asked, I asked, am I going to die? Am I going to die? And, um, and it was so real. And um, the, the answer I received was not from me. It came through my entire body. It was, it was a knowing and it, and the answer was no, you won't die here, but you will if you don't make a change and you have something to do here on the planet. Um, and I, and, you know, there's a lot of circumstances that were going on in my life. But as I got off that boat and I tried to sort of patch together what was a very traumatic experience for all of us, I came home, um, you know, a few days later to my home in Toronto to my husband at the time, a 15 year relationship. And I said, um, I need to leave this marriage. Um, I quit drinking. I made massive changes to the way that I was living. I got really honest with myself. I was ready to stop running from my past, from the, the patchwork ways that I had. And it, again, my drug was my work. It mm -hmm. really was. I used work as a vehicle um, to um, overcome my anxiety, to overcome my self-worth issues. I was using, I was addicted to success. I was addicted to accolades. I was addicted to awards. If I wasn't getting another one or another recognition, I was very, very low. It's embarrassing to talk about, but it's the truth of where I was at. And I started to um, meditate. I started to try and look for answers within myself and a world opened up to me, which eventually led me back to Jeff. Um, and um, it was a, the most profound experience of my life. And I've never been the same. It's been effing hard um, sure. to give up, you know, everything that I once knew and everything mm -hmm. I thought I was doing and every aspect of who I thought I was to enter into something else. But it's also been the greatest gift I've ever received. And um, I definitely am, my lens changed. I put on a new pair of glasses. I really, really did. Um, and that is uh, a special, special opportunity uh, for anyone. Um, but particularly, I think for me right now in the space, I find myself in the world running this, you know, Economic Club of Canada organization and having a real opportunity to perhaps make an impact. 
How long ago was that, Rhiannon, when, when you came back and went, I can't do this anymore. I'm addicted to work. I'm addicted to accolades. The marriage doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, I'm unhealthy and I'm running away from myself by pursuing my success and accolade addiction. Yeah. That was 2017 of August. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I, I haven't had a drink in two years. And again, you know, for me, um, and I talk very openly about it, my addiction looked so different than what I grew up in because I grew up, you know, the socioeconomic stat, like status and everything else had changed. I had a beautiful home. I had two children. I had a very successful career, but I was still using, um, alcohol and it's so socially acceptable. Alcohol, we have such a, a social problem with alcohol right now, um, in a deep, deep way. But when that is in your blood, when that is in your, um, family heritage, um, that addiction and that um, tendency, and it was really taking over my life. So I would probably, you know, drink to blackout four or five times a week in my own home. After wow. work, after putting my children to bed, I'd wake up at 5 a.m., I'd go to the gym, I'd run all my events, I'd run, you know, 100 events a year across the country. I learned how to live feeling like shit. Um, mm-hmm. And I learned that that was my normal. Um, and I pushed so hard um, to continue to do it. And it was such a wake up call, but it was every part of my identity that it was my only coping mechanism to deal with myself that in work. So when you take those things away, it's a pretty raw experience, you know, and, you, do, um, you do, you know, I know we talked about this in our previous conversation and this is vital because when we, and when I say we, I'm talking about society, when we look at the world and we, we, through our lenses and we want to judge and we want to understand, we want to say, Oh, well, at least I'm not on the, on Hastings street or the back alley shooting needles. I'm not an addict. Mm-hmm. And, and what I know because of my, my uh, science and my research is human beings are, are, are addicts. Yeah. That's it. Period. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not some humans. We're all addicts. To what degree, that's a different thing. And what kinds of addicts is a different thing. You know, and it's really important what you brought up because I think people need to get this. That if we see the drunk on the street in scruffy clothes, we go, oh, you poor bastard. You know, you're a drunken idiot. Or we see, you know, whatever it is. But what we don't realize is that the drunk is also driving around in a Bentley. What we don't, under all the time, right? We don't understand that the, the outside of the alcohol totally aside from that um the addictive behavior of working 65 hours a week oh god yeah it is is firing off the same mechanisms inside of the brain and as i explain to people all the time if you want to understand what your what your drug is it's very simple look at what you do to avoid feeling something else that's all it is yeah look at what you do to avoid feeling something else if you are a sex addict it's no different than you being an alcoholic. You are doing something to avoid feeling something else. Absolutely. Now, you may be volunteering at the church and everybody's giving you a round of applause because your particular form of addiction has a social uh, approval rating. Oh, yeah. Uh, or, yeah. And, and you're the accolade. You've got the accolades. You know, well, it's okay, but, you know, we now understand functioning alcoholism, but we haven't looked at functioning addiction that is non-external 
driven. So as in no alcohol, no cocaine, no whatever it is, it's actually internally driven, which is I'm going to pursue the next accolade or I'm going to pursue the next pat on the back. Let's flip that because, you know, this is a lot of the deep work that we do with individuals is one of the things that I speak about in the couple's work is you are, you are drawn to the person who is as wounded as you are, but with polar, polar opposite coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and when we do the work with couples, we say, you're never fighting about what you're fighting about. Right. You're actually fighting about your coping mechanism. They go, what do you mean? My coping mechanism is better than yours. How do I know I survived? And if I take on yours, I might not survive. And you're saying, no, mine's better than yours. How do I know? Because I survived. And we're always fighting about our coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So, and this is why I wanted to point out, you grew up in a very different environment than Jeff did. Mm-hmm. And yet, you both end up in very addictive behaviors, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. this is why I wanted to really get to, to this place. Talk to us a little bit about your near-death experiences, Jeff, and where it brought you to yeah with mine i had a i had a series of them there's um and just being able to look back through the lens that i have now of more of a you know looking at and seeing what i learned at that time or what i was you know being shown to do or why this was happening and not listening or whatever but the earlier ones i found um that i had in maybe my uh, late te- teens and early twenties were were bringing me to understand, you know, my own mortality, and the fact that you know living a life as some young men do, and how you know men were raised in this toxic masculinity type uh, situation is that we're invincible, and you can do whatever yep. you want, throw your body down a mountain, and you'll be fine. And I don't know anything about that, but I I, I read about it somewhere. I think it was in a movie or something. (laughs) (laughs) But then just, you know, having that, that awareness of, okay, well that this hurts, this is painful. Um, I, you know, if I'm not careful, I'll be out of here pretty quick. So Mm -hmm. having that awareness around my mortality and, you know, making peace with that, um pushed me into a lot of the eastern philosophies and reading up on that and what death means to a lot of other cultures because death you know from my lens growing up here is very different in other parts of the world and then you know in the middle east in northern africa you know with an islamic perspective death is completely different from from our death here same within the hindu philosophy so you know having experiences in those parts of the world with other people and then collectively having a conversation around what happened and me you know holding on to it and them just saying ah you know you lived and let's move on and just having that experience saying okay well this is you know an interesting perspective on life and death in and of itself so i learned you know, through those stages about my mortality and the people around me that, you know, being more grounded, being more present in the moment with people, because, you know, ultimately, you don't know how long that's going to be. And to cherish those moments when you have them, of course, you can fall back asleep in that process of 
not being uh, present. And then, you know, later on in life, you know, living the life that I was living, working long hours, being, you know, addicted to work in those ways and making, um, you know, not the, the most appropriate life decisions. Mm -hmm. I, my near death experiences were more at that point, wake up calls right. and I wasn't listening to them. So mm -hmm. you're getting pushed and pushed and pushed and having them more frequently trips to the hospital and things like that. Then the last one that I had was, you know, waking up in a hospital after being there for a couple of days. Um, and the nurse saying that we saved your life because through that process of working as much as I did, my immune system was vulnerable. And in 2011, I, co I contracted Lyme disease. So I had, you know, the chronic Lyme disease and still working what I was working. And then because that is so taxing on the immune system, I developed uh, hypothyroidism in the process, which is extremely rare for a young man in the early mid thirties. So that I had those two things and then still working the life that I was living, still pushing myself and getting to a point where body I shut down. body yeah. shut down, it, it literally completely shut down and I was, you know, a couple of hairs away from uh, being on the wrong side of the grass. And then having that last, you know, wake up call and finally getting the message, because if, you know, you could continue, there's only so many chances that you're going to get and it's eventually just going to be okay. That's but, but what, what, like you said, this was not a single event. Mm -hmm. So why did you get the message that time? Why didn't you get the message the time before or, you know, or any other time? What do you think what it was about that one that made you go, oh, you know what? Eh, maybe I'm a bit thick. Maybe I really need to pay attention. I do you know? Was, yeah, it was just actually, you know, lying in the position that I was in, in that hospital bed for that prolonged period and having the time to reflect and having an awakening through that process and then seeing everything uh, through a completely different lens and the series of those events and then understanding and having that aha moment where, okay, I get it. I understand now I have, you know, I'm bringing mindfulness to my own context and I can see uh, why I'm here and why I wasn't listening before and how it was so obvious at the time. But when you're asleep and you're in that tunnel, and then you can just blame it on, well, this is just an accident or this was whatever. And it wasn't anything more than, than that. Well, this, this is something I want to bring to both of you. Go, go ahead, Rhiannon. I you just want to, to say that, you know, when I had my awakening and a lot of the times when I hear people's stories of awakening, and it doesn't have to be a dramatic, you know, mm -hmm. middle of the Arctic near-death experience, but it could be cancer. It could be the death, death of a loved one. It could be a divorce. It could be a whole bunch of things that bring people to that space. Um, but what it was for me is all of a sudden in that moment, I felt like I had something to live for. And mm -hmm. although I was living all of those years asleep, I was running from life. I was avoiding feeling life. I was avoiding feeling like life is 
feeling depressed sometimes. Life is feeling all of these range of emotions and having these hard experiences. But Mm -hmm. somehow, in some way, we're told that there's a small slice of life that we're supposed to have, which looks a particular way and feels really good. and, And that's it. And so we feel so ashamed when that isn't our experience. And mm-hmm. having coming up against facing the fact that you might not be here, all that ugly that you were running from, it's actually pretty freaking beautiful. And you say, I actually want that. I choose that. I choose mm-hmm. this. Like there's something to choose to go on from. And I absolutely fully agree and support and applaud what you just said. Um, but I think there's a danger line here and that I, uh, we've talked about this before in our previous conversation, because when people hear about my fall, they say, Oh, that must've changed your life. No, it didn't. Mm -hmm. That's absolute bullshit. It didn't. I used to say it did Mm -hmm. because I actually thought it did, but I get now it didn't. Mm-hmm. It actually embedded me deeper in my own ego. Mm-hmm. It didn't. That's why I had to fall four times. It embedded me deeper into that. Because for me, in my research, and, and, I'm, and I'm really happy to hear from you guys on this, um, we don't change with those events. We often embed deeper with those events. We become more committed to the nonsense we've been doing and when people would ask me, how you doing? Like I said, fourth fall, 120 feet. And people say, how you doing? My jaw was wide closed. And I'd say, I'm great. I'm coming back. I wasn't, it didn't transform me. It embedded me. Mm-hmm. I fell in June and in November of that same year, <laughs> fell 120 feet, November of that same year, I went bungee jumping at 140 feet with my jaw wide closed. I was not changed by that event Mm -hmm. the event that changed me was quite a while after i'm not sure if it was i think it was i'm pretty sure it was nine months later after several reconstructive surgeries when i fell into a very deep dark depression Mm -hmm. and it and i fell into that deep dark depression because I'd been going out with my mates. My mates were trying to help me out and they'd take me out for a night out and I, and I'd be out and I'd be miserable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like this is not, and I would actually go, I can never get my life back. I can't find my laughter anymore. That was kind of like, you know, I know I'm alive if I can find my laughter and I couldn't find my laughter. Mm -hmm. And on a particular night, I went out with my mates and I laughed and I had a good night. I had fun. And I was, I, I came home and I walked up the back steps to my kitchen to go in the back door, feeling joy for the first time in so long mm. that I thought, okay, I can come back. And as I opened the door and the light flooded in, I could see across the kitchen floor, garbage festooned everywhere. There was kitty litter. There were meat wrappers. There were coffee grinds. There were vegetables. There were empty cans. It was disgusting and it smelled bad. And I knew exactly who the culprit was. And I went from feeling all that potential of, you know, I can, my, my life is coming back from feeling joy to feeling pure rage, walked into the living room and just wanted, I knew the culprit, who the culprit was and I wanted to kill the culprit. And there was the culprit on my couch, curled up, looking so relaxed. And I lifted my hand to strike the culprit and stopped myself because that's not, I'm not a violent person, but stopped myself. And instead of hitting the cat, I picked the cat up in my arms and the cat was cold. 
and I realized the cat was dead. And I fell to my knees and went into a deep, dark depression. 